0: Greetings from the 7th
1: Circle!
0: (laughs) Hello and welcome to the next episode of the 7th Circle of Film. I, as always, am your host Kieran and joining us today on our dance into the Mexican macabre through El Santo is the preeminent expert on all things Mexican horror el santo certainly included our silver asthma, man dr david wilt a lecturer at george washington university he has several accredited articles on the bfi is currently doing uh, some research into old Hammer House works and is just generally a pleasure to talk to as a heads up to all the listeners the first hour of this is a little different than our usual spiel into the scene-by-scene stuff uh, we go into an interview over dr david wilt and stuff around uh, el santo generally as as I'm sure a lot of you don't know much about him, as I didn't, certainly. And then we go into Baron Baracula. As I'm an idiot, I didn't actually do the introduction during any of this, so I'm going to do it now, where you can find anything about Dr. David Wilt, further information, websites, Twitter, all that fun stuff in the description below. You can also find some stuff on El Santo down there. And the topic of conversation that we're going to jump straight into uh, is a question that I proposed on why wrestlers uh, seemingly do so well in the filmscape, whereas other sportsmen don't get anywhere near as much recognition when they jump into this.
1: When I am a star, i'll maybe I'll appear in a movie or two, sort of playing myself or you know, a fictional biography of myself. But for those who really have extended careers, it's usually after they've retired from sports. Like Jim Brown in the United States. He was yeah. a professional football player, retired, then became a movie actor. Um, and the, the other thing is that there's not really that many sports where your, not your fame, but your talent transfers to film. I mean, if you're a, a football star, how many football movies can you make? You know, and and your skills as a football player, they don't really transfer to action films or Westerns. I mean, The Dirty Dozen has the great scene towards the end where Jim Brown is running to try to catch the truck to get away and the Nazis are all shooting at him. And it's like, yeah, there's Jim Brown, the great football player. But that's like two minutes in all of his movies where he sort of does something as a football player, not to, to digress too much, but there was a uh, American football player, a quarterback in the 1940s. Uh, and he, he actually, at some point, I think he married uh, actress Jane Russell. But anyway, his name was Bob Waterfield, and he, was, he played for the Los Angeles football team. So he's right out there in Hollywood. So he's in one of Johnny Weissmuller's Jungle Gym movies. And he's playing like just some explorer in Africa. Uh, but then at the end of the movie, there's a scene where he throws these coconut bombs like he's passing a football. And it's like, oh, we got to put something in there because it's Bob Waterfield, a famous quarterback. So we'll have him, well, he can't be at throwing footballs in Africa. So we'll have him throw coconuts loaded with dynamite. You know that's the most ridiculous excuse for shoehorning in some sort of athletic stuff. You know, I, I guess the only the only ability that would sort of transfer would be if you're a martial arts star, like mixed martial arts, like yeah. Chuck Norris or Dave Batista or The Rock or whatever. You've got Chuck Claude then, Van
0: Damme who can't even act. <laughs> They've yeah. managed to shove him in and stuff.
1: But even then, they generally have retired from competition, before they go into the movies. And so, uh, you know, Santo is really this very unusual case where he began wrestling in in the mid 1930s. And he was forcibly retired, because he had a heart attack in the ring, and they forced him to retire in 1982. And so all those years, he was a professional wrestler, but also for 25 of those years, he was also making movies. So, he was a case where you could go to see him in the wrestling arena, and then the next night you could go to the theater and see him in a movie. Uh, And then if you want to add on top of that, the comic books and all that. So, he really had a very unique multimedia, multi-career that was simultaneously going on, and I think that had significant amount to do with it. Plus, he basically was the same character. He wasn't uh, you know, like an actor acting in various roles. And so uh, whether you saw him in live in the theater, uh, I'm live in the arena, live in the movie theater, uh, on televised wrestling, on his TV show, or in the comic books, you're getting the same guy all the time, the guy with the silver mask. So um, he had, does have, I mean, I'm not saying there is not uh, somebody else who had that same sort of career, but there's none that I can think of offhand. Maybe some some culture that I'm not aware of, somebody in India or Egypt or something that had a similar sort of uh, simultaneous multi uh, career, but I don't really know of it. So
0: got that. nothing comes to mind. I'm trying to think. Yeah, over in this country, no, it's just all actors going around. Yeah, I've pushed into other stuff occasionally. Um obviously, yeah, the gentry back in the 40s, the 30s went into shooting and the like in the Olympics that we'd sent off. But that's going from acting into that. This is the same kind of circles. But otherwise, yeah, that does come to a question I wanted to ask um, within the film of Al Santo and the General Mythos the films themselves you get films like um, behind Me, hellraiser where they've made hellraiser films or non-hellraiser films and stuffed in uh, pinhead to try to market it to the wider audience and the, the Santo obviously it's like generic movie monsters from the 60s hammer house stuff universal stuff was it that they'd made the script and then said how can we fit el santo and the wrestling into it or was it how do we fit these monsters into el santo
1: and wrestling I think for the bulk of Santo films, it was the latter. Now, early in his career, he made his first two films in Cuba, um, independent sort of, you know, films, and they are, he, he's, he's a deus ex machina. He really has very little to do, um, and it is, conceivable that those scripts were written, and then when he became available, they just said, okay, you know, we won't call him Jaime Robles, we'll say it's El Santo. Um, but I don't know that that happened, but it could have. When he comes to Mac back to make films in Mexico, once again, his first six or seven films, uh, he is largely a deus ex machina. There's a leading man besides him, et cetera, but uh, there clearly were films were written around what they were trying to set up as his character. Uh, It sort of starts off where uh, they're trying to set him up similar to Batman, for example, where he has uh, a a crime laboratory, he's a crime fighter, uh, things like that. A little bit of the comic strip, uh, the Phantom, where it's the mask is passed down from generation to generation, uh, and so he's not—he's the star, and clearly those films were written about him, um, but he's not really the main character. But then, when you get to the films, particularly beginning of the four that he makes in '64, '65. Uh, for Vergara, of which uh, Baron Braculo is one of them. Those are the ones where it mostly disposes with uh, the secondary leading man. It's Santo. He's the protagonist. He's the central figure. Uh, it's not like, oh, here's a police inspector doing something and Santo comes in to help him. No, this is Santo's, the main character. And for all the rest of his films, Generally, uh, that's the situation. Now, I'm not saying that it's not possible that some of these films were existing scripts that were accommodated to Santo at a certain point. I mean, in the late 60s, early 70s, there's a handful of Santo films which don't fit the two main... Uh, thrusts, sort of genres that he worked in. About half of his films, he made 50 films as a star. Um, Almost exactly half have some fantastic element, monsters or some strong science fiction element. The other half are are crime films. So he's fighting gangsters. Um, But there's a very small number in the middle there. Uh, there's a jungle movie, you know. Uh, the mummy um,
0: stuff, and you've got lepers as well, obviously, in the West at some point. That's a
1: Western one. Um, he makes um, Santo y el Aguilar Real, which is basically a, it's a combination of an old house mystery and a ranchera film. It's set on a Mexican hacienda, but it has, oh, who's trying to murder this young woman who owns the house? Um, So, these are uh, attempts to sort of move into different genres. And they could very easily have been done with not Santo, just plug some leading man in there. Um, But I sort of suspect that it was the other way around was, you know, what can we do to mix it up a little bit, you know. Oh, I'm tired of fighting vampires and Frankenstein's monster. And I'm tired of fighting drug smugglers. Give me something else to do. Okay, we'll send you on a trek through the jungle and we'll put you in the old west and we'll put you on a hacienda. Um, So, but those are really the oddities, you know, all the others uh, fall into those two main categories. And as I said, they're all, Pretty clearly, Santo vehicles that were designed for with him as the protagonist. So,
0: yeah, it's not that it's comical. Occasionally, it's the same with Batman and Wonder Woman. You know, they've got adventures where they go off in the jungles, they go bowling, and all this stuff. In the sixties, they had uh, these little ventures out and sing Santo, not fight lepers. Obviously, that would be awful in a ring going around taking on the the carry and in um oh i think it's the hunt for dracula's treasure where he goes time traveling mm. around pushing on that and you've got el santo versus the vampire women which has a really weird ending to it but it is very fun uh it, it, it's not comical at all it is it's just fun and it pushes into that kind of 60s stuff and that comes to another thing actually i want to ask in terms of superhero stuff in the modern era It feels so surreal to see Santo doing this kind of stuff back then in the 60s, coming in with a cape in the middle of a uh, horror film, in the middle of a Western adventure or a uh, murder mystery kind of thing. But it almost seems like a a progenitor to a lot of the stuff you had in the 90s, where you had Blade, you have uh, Ghost Rider during the 80s, where you have all these very uh, campy or outright uh, superhero films where they jump into these situations as well. Do you think Santo had any influence on anything coming later outside of Mexico?
1: You know, it's hard to say. Uh, it, one of the interesting things is that Santo was uh, Mexicans always you know, claim him, oh, he's the Mexican superhero, he's our national idol, etc. But he was quite well known, not only in Latin America, where you would expect it to be, but his films did get a fair amount of uh, exposure, well, the United States as well, particularly the United States had up to a certain point, it sort of died off in the 80s, um, significant, fairly significant number of cinemas that showed Spanish language films, um, mostly in the Southwest and West Coast, but other places like Chicago, New York, New Jersey, Florida, um, had significant Spanish-speaking Uh, populations, and so Santo was well known in the United States, but then you see Santo films, uh, chiefly those which are in the uh, horror genre, because they're easily exportable. Um, In Italy, large number, Spain, obviously, France, Germany, um, Egypt, the Middle East, so Uh, he was internationally very well known and so um, particularly when you're dealing with people who are making films that are also film fans and uh, you know Quentin Tarantino is probably the greatest example of that but there are many others people who made movies particularly when you get into The 70s and 80s where the film school generation starts making films. So you've got George Lucas, uh, Martin Scorsese, people like that um, who uh, even Francis Ford Coppola um, who went to film school and so they're film fans and so they incorporate things from other movies in their own films and so it's possible that there are people in Hollywood who are whenever they start to make these um, superhero films, I mean, there was a trickle of them in the 70s and in the early 80s, you know, especially on television, you had Incredible Hulk series and things like that, Wonder Woman, Um, but yeah, we we start to get the theatrical ones later in the 80s, Superman, Batman, et cetera, um, that those people may have been aware of Santo's existence and said, you know, we don't have to make a campy Batman movie like the one in the 1966 based on the TV series. We can make straight action films with superheroes. Um, I, I mean, yeah, you get some of the later Batman ones, Batman and Robin, et cetera, that are campy, deliberately campy. But generally, a lot of those. Uh, 80s 90s superhero films yeah they're straight i mean they're they're action films um, and they don't uh, talk down to the audience they don't make fun of their heroes etc and so yeah it's possible that uh, somebody said wait a minute we don't have to make comic book superhero movies uh in a very campy sort of way so it's, it's nobody probably would ever admit it, but maybe some of them would have been somewhat influenced by that. I'd hope there'd be a,
0: a bit of uh, admiration in that. I, it's certainly, uh, it's a fun genre, and I think taking anything from back in the past, especially when you're talking Santo stuff in the '60s, which is inspired by a lot of Universal stuff. Yeah, uh, with these 50s voice stuff that were inspired largely, I always find, by the 20s uh, experimental German films. And then before that, you've got theatre is the only way these things take. And especially with Santo as well, you've got wrestling, which takes a lot from theatre on that. And you can see it in the set design. You can see it in how Santo moves um, on how, you know, everything's exaggerated, everything's pushed about because that's what they have to work off before this. I always love that kind of stuff and seeing the evolution going through. It's so evident though in Santo's stuff. Going from, uh, wrestling with vampires where they kind of have their hands out in the, the old cartoonish stuff, holding their capes out and they do these exaggerated bite movements down. That I said the sets, you've got one thing kind of sitting in the middle and they work around it. I, I, I've always put was beautiful kind of theatrical style on it. yeah, I I wouldn't be bothered at all. I know of the horror directors, you've got Guillermo del Toro, obviously, Mexican, hugely inspired by some of the Santos stuff. And it's the the first time I ever saw his actual face. uh, He had, um, I think it was the actor card, remember rightly. He had uh, Santos SAG membership.
1: Yeah, uh uh-huh. Yeah, it's funny because uh, many, many years ago, uh, well, it's relative, but... um, when uh, Guillermo del Toro made his first feature film, Kronos, he came to Washington, D.C., uh, for the Washington, D.C. Film Festival. And then afterwards, he had um, a Q&A session that I was at. And uh, I was I was into Mexican films at that time. I mean, actually, for, for quite some time already. But, um, you know, I asked him... Uh, what his influences were, and he downplayed the Mexican at that point, because he's very early in his career, and he said, oh, I was very influenced, I really liked Hammer horror movies, so, you know, but later on, yes, he has embraced um, his Mexican identity, and um, Santo films, etc., so, um, but the, the most thing I remember about Del Toro, other than that comment, was was how slim he was. I mean, he was never skinny, but uh, he was definitely a much younger, uh, more spelt man at that time. So,
0: I mean, you've managed to keep it all together, I suppose. I suppose sitting in a director's chair doesn't give you much exercise running around.
1: Yeah, that's true. He's
0: so. doing an animation at the minute, so. You can't push much of that. Really good to be fair. The Pinocchio stuff. I don't know if you've caught it yet, but it is. No, I haven't. That's no. stunning stuff compared to the uh, Disney one, at least. Awful.
1: Yeah, I'm always confused. I mean, I, I'm a fair fan of animation, um, but for Del Toro and like Wes Anderson, Fantastic Mr. Fox, they directed the film but what does that mean as a director of animation when you're not an animator, you know? So I'm always confused by that, you know, especially when you're not having people draw drawings anymore, that's all being done on the computer. You're like standing over their shoulders saying, you know, do this, do that. So, uh, but what what do I know? I mean, both. as you said, you like Pinocchio, which I haven't seen, but Fantastic Mr. Fox was a fine film, you know, so I'm not going to say Wes Anderson can't direct animation because the movie's fine.
0: Um, Maybe just reminds them to save it occasionally, don't lose any uh, of (laughs) your classic teacher Mm -hmm. style. (laughs) With that as well, with the masks and the unmasking, talking about the SAG cards, uh, I had a friend who desperately wanted me to ask, if you know anything about Luchador at all, Uh, Santa obviously wasn't unmasked properly at least until a week or a month before his death. Um, do you know how viable that is nowadays or how much of a mythos that still holds in Mexican culture? Is that still a thing or is that largely a bygone?
1: Um, I'm not up on real, real recent Mexican uh, wrestling, but until let's say the last decade, um, yes, it is uh, a fairly big deal. It, it it was for many years, uh, if you were unmasked in the ring, then you, you that identity was gone. Um, and then you would change to another identity. What a fairly rare example is a wrestler named Black Shadow, uh, who was unmasked maybe by Santo, I can't remember. Um, his real name was Alejandro Cruz, um, but he broke the rule He couldn't wear his mask anymore, but he kept wrestling under the name Black Shadow. Normally, if you're unmasked and you're uh, Black Shadow, you would change wrestlers out Cruz, or you'd get a different mask and put it on. Oh, now I'm Blue Shadow or something like that. Um, But there were, who knows how, uh, as a famous quote from The Simpsons many years ago, where Homer Simpson said, oh, Mexican wrestling down there, it's a real sport. You know? So I'm not sure uh, how much Santos mask after a certain point was actually at risk. I know there are examples, there are photos shown where his mask is severely ripped and he almost lost it. I mean, at a certain point, maybe they said, hey, don't tear Santos mask off. You know, You can beat him in the ring. He did lose various matches. Um, but don't tear his mask off. He's too valuable to the, to the um, ring world, to the wrestling uh, industrial complex. But um, yeah, it, it, it's a thing. And uh, it, although it is, once again, it's sort of interesting that the biggest names, Santo, Blue Demon, Neil Mascaras, they never lost their mask. So whether they were just so good, they never lost their mask, or whether uh, their opponents were said, you know, do whatever you want, but don't tear their mask off. So yeah, Sando actually um, semi-removed his mask uh, a couple of times on television. Um, the most notorious one is like the week before he died. And, He took it like 80% off. But there were at least one and maybe two other chat shows where he took it off a little bit. And there was some controversy because this was in the 70s. He died in 84. So the the, last instance was in 84. But in in the 70s or early 80s, there were several chat shows where he did it a little bit. And those were at a time when there was not a lot of uh, vcrs available and so he didn't worry too much about somebody doing a screen grab you know and then putting it up on the internet which didn't exist either just a giant Um, camera just sitting in the side but there was actually one amusing uh, amusing in retrospect not at the time but santo you know had his photo comic uh, which began in 1952 and um in the early 70s he had a dispute with the guy who did who published it jose g cruz so they split up but cruz still owned the rights to the name and so he had a santo impersonator change the costume a little bit and it was a bodybuilder so you could tell it was the same guy but he had they had a long legal very disputatious uh argument for a long time. And like, Santo had a bodyguard that followed him around for a while. But Jose G. Cruz, who was also an artist, somehow he had got a picture of Santo without his mask. And he would publish it in magazines, but he photoshopped out his hair so it made look Santo look like he was bald. And so that was a great insult to show his face and to make, oh, look, here's Santo. I've replaced him with a younger man because he was old and bald and here's what he looks like. So.
0: Fair enough. Uh, he never really had much of an ego is what I hit on. But I mean, maybe he did. See, he does lose a lot and I always found that kind of impressive. He gets yeah. like the crap beat out of him occasionally in the films at least, um, which you don't see. Yeah. Certainly in the 60s, like America, they had that whole ridiculous the heroes have to win scheme that was going on. But he, he actually does lose Occasionally, not overall. Obviously, it's all folk hero stuff. But
1: he actually lost. I mean, he certainly wasn't invincible in the ring. In real life, in fact, he made a number of films with Blue Demon, who was probably his closest competitor in wrestling films. And in the films, they're mostly always, you know, buddies. They're a team. But in real life, they weren't really that close. They were rivals, and. Blue Demon was uh, known to sort of in personal life sort of grumble about Santos so famous, you know, and he goes, but actually, if you look at the times that they faced each other in the ring, mostly in the 50s, and the last time was in the early 60s, Blue Demon actually won the majority of their matches together. And he's like, I beat him in the ring. You know, why is he such a big star? So, but uh, so the other thing is, of course, you want to add suspense in the film. So if Fanto, Santo beats everybody very easily, then not as much suspense. So
0: I think with the Blue Demon there, it comes on to what you were saying earlier with the masks, where is it theatrics or is it um, skill in the ring? I think it, it's skill either way. He's just a really good showman. And that's why they don't unmask him. That's why they kind of put it into the script doesn't get a mask because he's that good yeah. uh, kind of showing off and there's something impressive about that, definitely. I mean Santo himself said wrestling is a sport but he's the athleticism behind it, and he, he shows it off to be fair. It's all gymnastics and pushing and pulling. it's great.
1: yeah that's, it, it's interesting because one of the sort of the, I don't know if you call it a flaw, but one of the things that I don't enjoy or which of course hindsight is fine, um, in the wrestling films is that it is Santo mostly versus wrestlers. And so the, the Santo film that has the most cinematic action is Santo versus El Doctor Muerte, which was made in Spain. And so it has stuntmen And they're doing film style fighting, which is much more effective on film than Santo fighting three wrestlers, you know, in somebody's backyard where, you know, he hits them, they fall down, he hits the second guy, first guy gets up again, he hits him, etc. Now, that's not always the case Um, when films where he's with Fernando Bosés. Uh, they're really good together. They really have very violent fights. Um, And there's also films like Santo and Blue Demon versus the Monsters, where Santo in an interview said uh, that he felt that film wasn't as effective because most of the monsters were uh, played by actors who he couldn't beat up on, you know. Uh, in fact, if you watch Santo versus the Monster, or even versus Monsters, now Frankenstein's monster is played by a professional wrestler uh, who later became known as um, uh But uh, he's he's complaining mostly about the guy who plays the vampire, who is a very skinny little guy. And then the mummy in that film, there's two mummies. There's acting mummy who is a skinny old guy and there's wrestling mummy who is a wrestler who looks completely different there's pictures of them standing next to each other and it's like you know santa's like i can't fight this skinny guy i'll break him in half so most of his films uh you get to see in many cases the same guys that he works with year after year professional wrestlers and so, yeah, they're doing the pushing and catching and, uh, you know, nobody gets knocked out the first time. Whereas if it's a real fight and Santo does a, a drop kick, you'd probably be knocked out if you're a real guy. So that's, you know, I, I will confess, if I'm watching a Santo film for the multipleth of time, uh, Especially the arena wrestling rings—that's the ones I'll fast-forward through. So, because um, they got to show the whole thing, we got to show all three falls. So uh, here's a ten-minute break in the middle of the movie where you can go to the restroom if you want to.
0: No, yeah, that, that's perfectly fair. I've said like multiple times on talking uh, to friends on this show that the Japanese fighting side where they they'll hit, they'll kick. There's no real impact. I was never a fan of that kind of stuff. It felt too showy uh, in a weird way. Whereas even back the hammer house stuff and modern uh, action stuff on the Western side tends to be one punch and that's you going down. It's it's what needs to be shown, it's what kind of progresses the plot. And the plot the plot's the mainstay in kind of that, to show it's a yeah. film rather than wrestling, which I'm sure Santo, you know, loved doing, so it's why he had that yeah. predilection towards preferring the wrestling kind of style. Yeah, I did see that as well, um, going through wrestlers in this. They pop up constantly. I mean, the writer for the film we're going over now, uh, Ferdinando Ozer's, is in this as Baron McClover, And he was also in, are uh, uh, the Santa versus the Vampire Women, I think it was called.
1: He's um, in a bunch of them. Ferdinando yeah. I, 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 Fernando is an interesting guy. Was a professional wrestler born in Spain. Comes to Mexico in the 50s. He's in a ton of movies um, playing masked heroes where the hero without a mask is played by a straight actor. Um, But you can always tell it's Fernando Osses wearing the mask because he has a very specific body type. Um, He was uh, uh, an actor. Uh, Most of his films, Baron Bracula, he's he's dubbed. Uh, They used to say that it was because He had such a strong Spanish accent, but I don't know why that would make a difference. You know, Spanish from Spain, that is. Um, But in some other films, he uses his own voice and he sounds fine. Um, But he's an actor. He's a wrestler, obviously. Uh, He was a producer. He was a screenwriter. He even directed a handful of films um, later in life. So he was very multi-talented and deserves a lot of credit. There's a handful of people... Um, that deserve a lot of credit for what I call the Santo mythos. Um, You know, Jose G. Cruz and the people that did the comics, they're the ones who created the superhero aspect. And then the film aspect, Osez and a number of other writers um, wrote a bunch of them and a number of directors directed multiple ones. And yeah, the actors as well, the, the Santo's buddies, the wrestlers, there was, a, there was a guy who was Santo's um, bodyguard, sort of his assistant, um, and shows up in a ton of Santo's later films. His name is Ismael Ramirez, um, and but he was also a professional wrestler, wrestled as something Rojo. Um, but anyway, he's in like, a dozen of Santo's later films, and he also doubles Santo a number of times. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a relatively small community. Even the, the Mexican film community was relatively small, which is why you see a lot of the same people, and why you see people in Santo movies who are, like, serious actors. You know, and so they'll be in a Louis Boonwell movie one week and then they'll be in a Santo movie playing a mad doctor the next week. Uh, because everybody did everything, except the very top stars who didn't have to do it. But all the others were well, they're working actors. And, you know, yeah, I'm gonna be in this serious film, I'm gonna win an award. But that and you know, 50 cents will give me a cup of coffee. I got to keep working. So I'll be the villain in a Santo movie next week. And so you see a lot of familiar faces, but even taking that into consideration, yeah, the the Mexican horror movies, the Lucha movies, it's a community within a community. Um, and so that's why uh, a lot of the same people, not just wrestlers, but same actors, directors, etc. um, show up in santo movies blue demon movies etc
0: i suppose before we actually jump in probably to the Baron backover stuff um, that's anybody who does want to watch it it's difficult to find but not impossible luckily perfectly legal you can get it on the internet archive it's in okay quality there and you can buy it as well uh, i think it's about 20 pound if you look yeah around. i
1: actually uh, i had the first copy i ever got was uh, somebody sent me a dub back in the eighties on a VHS tape, you know, homemade. Um, And then I think I recorded a couple myself from television broadcasts, in the late eighties, early nineties, but to review it for what we're gonna talk about today, rather than go into the other room and try to find one of the DVDs um, that I had copied it onto. I I went onto the internet and um, found a decent quality copy, not a restored one, obviously, but um, certainly watchable. And so um, I, I think a number of years ago, well probably 20 years ago now, maybe not quite 20, but um, the, the four Vergara films, uh, two of them came out on DVD, uh, Acha Diabolica and in um, las Brujas. Um, but the other two they couldn't find the masters for. So Baron Bracula and Profanadores de Tumbas didn't come out on that same set. Um, Who knows, maybe someday somebody will find uh, a decent master and try to to, uh, put it out professionally. Vergara, the producer of these films, there's not very much known about him. I mean, it's known when he was born and when he died and his career, but um, in the 60s, Uh, He had actually done some producing as early as the late 40s, but in the 60s, he produced these four Santo films, four Blue Demon films, uh, and then he had the idea, which was not entirely original, but uh, to hire some Hollywood performers. So he hired Boris Karloff for four films. Karloff, in, in point of fact, didn't go to Mexico. All of his scenes were shot in Los Angeles because Karloff was not in very good physical condition. He made four with John Carradine, uh, including two of the Carradine films also had Mil Mascaris. Uh Mil Mascaris was sort of a created uh, wrestler. Um, and then he also made uh, at least two other westerns. He made one western with a Hollywood actor named Jeffrey Hunter, who was a fairly big star in the late 50s, early 60s, and one with um, Nick Adams, who was a TV star in a Western series and probably known to genre fans for being in a couple of um, Japanese kaiju movies. Um, He's in um, Frankenstein Conquers the World, I think, and maybe he's in Monster Zero. So anyway, Verdgara had this idea to try to make these uh, presumably dual language versions, um, but he died in 1970 and the films sort of didn't really disappear, but they sort of trickled out. Um, mostly all of them are available fairly readily now, but so this was just before that where he was making these fairly cheap sort of on the margins of the Mexican film industry. Mexican film industry, um, not to go into a huge amount of detail, but um, at the time Guacala uh, was made in 65, there were three filmmaking facilities in Mexico, uh, Churubusco Azteca, uh, the America Studios, and San Angel. San Angel would go out of business a couple of years later. Those were split between two, and those were for higher filmmaking facilities. They weren't production, I mean, they weren't owned by a production company. So those were two different uh, film unions. STPC was San Angel and Churubusco, and STIC, which was the cheap film union, was made at the America Studios. So. The Vergara films were made under the auspices of STIC, but it doesn't look to me like they were made at the America studios. It looks to me like they were mostly shot on location, and then there's a few very cheap looking sets, and they're not quite as bad in this film as some of the other Vergara ones where they look like literally this, it's 10 feet wide. And so uh, I know there's no credit on the film for where it was shot. Most of the time you will see filmed at Churubusco, filmed at America. There's none there. There's a credit for a film laboratory which apparently had some recording facilities, etc. So uh, these are really on the margin of the industry, if you compare them to Santo versus Vampire Women, or you compare them to uh, Operation 67, or Santo versus the Martian Invasion, which came right after these, those look really slick and professional. These films, and part of their charm of the Vergara films, is they look really sleazy and low rent. They don't look amateurish. In fact, when I rewatched it again yesterday, I noticed some interesting things which I didn't notice before. Like there's some very professional looking dissolves, there's some superimpositions of ghosts and things like that. And those you wouldn't do on a, a no budget film, those would uh, cost money to do in the laboratory. And there's some other nice filmmaking aspects to it uh, that indicate, even though it probably had a super low budget, most of which probably went to Santo for his salary, um, that uh, some care was taken in making these films, some um, imagination, some interest in making a decent film, even though it's on a very low budget. And so that's one reason why I like this quartet of Santo films. He hasn't quite reached the point in his films where um, he has a girlfriend and things like that, where he's you know a fully rounded protagonist. Um, actually a couple of the, the uh, other Vergara films like Acha Diabolica, which also has a um, colonial era flashback. Um, Santo has two girlfriends in that movie, one in the colonial period, and one in the contemporary period. Unfortunately, they both get murdered. So uh, he has bad luck with his girlfriend. This film, he doesn't really have a girlfriend. But uh, yeah, these four films, uh, I recommend people to seek out. Uh, If you can find uh, Attack Las Brujas and Accia Diabolica, you should be able to find a very good DVD quality. Uh, Profanadores de tumbas, which is really wacky and uh, El Baron quality uh, Quality's not going to be quite as good in terms of um, video, audio quality, but they are worth seeking out, I must say.
0: I can kind of live with a reduced quality as long as it doesn't do what... This bizarre trend I found with Samson, think these the American copies, like dubbed over in English? I don't know why they did that. <laughs> I don't know why they bothered. Oh, if you certainly, if you go to... Um, Mystery Science Theater three thousand. They covered one of them. I think it was uh, that's the Vampire Women. Remember rightly, and that, I just had Samson come. Up. Why? <laughs> yeah,
1: that- I mean it's odd because there was just right before that Santo's first Mexican film, Santo versus the Zombies, was also dubbed into English by not by Kay Gordon Murray who did Wax Museum and Vampire Women, by somebody else. And it was called Invasion of the Zombies. And that's pretty hard to find in a decent copy. In that one, they do a literal translation and they call him the saint. Um, So that's, you know, I guess for Samson versus the vampire women, you know, at the time, um, Peplum was very popular. So you had Machiste, Hercules, Samson. Maybe they said, okay, you know, Here's a muscle man who doesn't wear a shirt. I mean, that's sort of Hercules, so we'll call him Samson. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it, it is a little bit odd. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you play the cards that you're dealt. So.
0: I think muscle man who doesn't own a shirt describes about yeah. 90% of all 80s action figures going through just everyone in America. Maybe, maybe Sam, uh, Samson did something for uh, Schwarzenegger. For still, up for everyone, <laughs> absolutely everyone. Is that why, by the way, that you uh, picked to cover Baron Black Clover stuff? Is it the the authenticity, the not cheapness, obviously, but the um, ingenuity? Let's say.
1: I would say I I picked it for for a couple reasons. Um, you know, the uh, number one, it, it is an interesting film, and it's Santo versus vampires, which you know, vampires were his most frequent screen opponents. Um, number two, uh, it's him and Fernando Osez, So the screen action is very good. Uh, you know, it's, it's just those two fighting all the time. Um, and they're very well matched, and so it's quite exciting. And the other is, uh, these are a, sort of a self-contained little island that aren't very well known. Santo versus the Vampire Women—that's pretty well known, both in dubbed and original versions. Also, that's not a great—it's a very good film, but it's not a great Santo film, or at least not your first Santo film you would see, because he is clearly a Deus ex Machina. Um, and so, for the later films, there's a couple of others I was thinking about: Santo and Blue Demon versus the Monsters. It's pretty entertaining maybe it's a little better known to people. Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and Wolfman. That's uh, uh, one of my top 10 Santo films. Um, and has a lot to recommend it. And I'd recommend that film too. It's in color, pretty higher budget, etc. Uh, Santo has a girlfriend, so that's you know always uh, giving you a little more uh, insight into his personality. Um, but this one, yeah, this is a um, especially thinking of Santo sort of a more obscure Santo film and yet one that um, checks off a lot of entertainment related boxes uh, as opposed to you know, Santo versus the Headhunters which is super boring um, you know, that's the jungle one um, and some of the others that I couldn't really in good conscience recommend <laughs> until you've seen all the others Yeah, then you could watch santo versus the headhunters
0: i've got if you bring up a top 10 list i have to ask in terms of this film particularly baron mcclover in the 50 films roughly where would it rank
1: well the top 10 list that i did a few weeks ago um and put it on my instagram and my my twitter although now it's not called twitter anymore now it's called x um the uh i didn't rank I just picked the top ten, and I said they're not ranked within them, and uh, Baron Bracula is in that top ten. In fact, all four of the Vergara ones are in that top ten, along with Vampire Women, um, Vengeance of the Vampire Women, which is an early 70s one, um, Monsters, uh, Dracula, uh, uh, and Wolfman, and... The two uh, James Bond ones, Operation 67 and Treasure of Moctezuma, um, those are not horror oriented. I mean, they have science fiction-y gadgets, but they're they're just good films. They're Santo and Jorge Rivero secret agents, you know, so it's clearly a James Bond um not rip-off, homage, let's put it that way. So so those are the top 10. So I, I it's, it's really hard to rank because uh, your judgment varies depending upon, you know, is it how entertaining they are in general, how they treat Santo, etc. So, but yeah, all four of the Vergara and Baron Bracula um, is in that category, is in the top 10, so.
0: Look quickly, go through a little bit of the uh, the ins and outs of some of the cast and crew wise. So directed by, I think another Santo uh, mainstay. I'm gonna butcher these, I apologize. I can't speak Spanish a lick of it. I could do German, French, I can't do Spanish. Uh, so Jose Diaz Morales.
1: Yeah, he was um, from Spain, uh, Mexico, clearly for the language reasons uh, periodically got influxes of people, like when Franco um, took over at the end of the Spanish Civil War, he had a bunch of people. But then there are a lot of people uh, come to Mexico from all over Latin America because you know, Costa Rica doesn't have a big film industry. So if you're a Costa Rican actor or filmmaker, you're gonna come to Mexico, which had a big film industry. So Jose Diaz Morales, I think he might've been a journalist. He was a writer, screenwriter, comes to Mexico, directs some santo films he's probably um if you're a, just a general mexican film fan uh, not best known for his santo films uh in the later part of the 60s he made a big whole uh, ton of films that are um you know it's i don't know what, uh, they're they're sexy films but sexy comedies in the late 60s oh, aspects oh. you know so he had made a whole bunch of those. Um, so uh, you know, but he was a very competent filmmaker. Although, uh, as I've, I've mentioned before, anybody who looks at my Santo Films website, you know, I don't want to repeat what I've already said. But if you look at Baron Bracula, he has an odd. Some of the, the aspects of his direction are very nice, the I mean, camera movement, the angles, and things like that um, are quite good. Uh, but he has a strange uh, penchant for having super long angles at times. You know, there's a a scene early in the film where Santo is fighting the vampire in the empty wrestling arena. And there's a high angle shot of the, the ring and they look like little ants. You can't even tell what's going on. And there's other scenes where He's a hundred feet away from the action. Why does he do that? I I don't have any idea. I mean, yeah, if you want to vary your camera angles and you want to have a covering shot and then some close-ups, that's fine. But don't put the camera a mile away so we can't see what's going on. But in general, he was a professional director. Um, He he didn't really specialize in horror movies or lucha movies, um, unlike somebody say like, René Cardona, uh, who been, done, did a bunch of Santo movies, um, or Chano or who did a lot of fantasy films. In Mexico, it was kind of hard to be a specialist because it was a relatively small industry. Um, you had a bunch of directors who belonged to the union, and they were all sort of fighting for a job. If you make your film industry makes a hundred films a year, which was a good year, um, and you've got 30 directors or 50 directors who are active directors, um, you know, you're scrapping for what you can find. So, um, but Diaz Morales does a pretty good job um, on this film, the other ones he made um, for Santo. Screenwriters very quickly, Rafael Garcia-Travesi. Um, he, once again, sort of a generalist, but he did write a number of Santo films. He had apparently... Um, uh, to like to make the santo films that had flashbacks to colonial era santos, because uh, Attack in Las Brujas and uh, Hacha Diabolica have the same thing. El Mundo de los Muertos, which is a santo and blue demon film from 69, that's also um, a film that has a flashback to colonial era, Santo and Garcia Travesi did that. And we've talked a little bit about Fernando Lopez. as I said. Um, I, I guess it's hard to say, you know, did he write himself the juicy role of Baron Bracola, or did he just write the script and then he said, oh, by the way, you know, I could play that. Um, so, uh, but he was one of Santo's most frequent collaborators uh in all different aspects
0: i wouldn't say it was particularly juicy he just basically got the crap kicked out it's great seeing like dracula come into a wrestling arena it's such a contrast to what you get in like the 90s ford coppola one where he comes in and then just santo beats him senseless for five (laughs) minutes it's just hilarious to watch, I he kicks back as good as he gets. It comes with the wrestling side. It's just such a yeah. a juxtaposition against this horror side. Even even when we're going to have a house stuff, where you had Christopher Lee going around the mummy costume, with his hands held out. It's still such a bizarre look to see this Luchador um, beating him down. It's great.
1: I was going to say, I guess uh, from time to time, probably somebody said, "Hey, remember you're a vampire," because <laughs> the. Periodically, you'll see Fernando Osez try to bite Santo while they're wrestling. Like he's punching him and kicking him. But then when he gets him in a clinch, then he goes, oh, I'm supposed to be a vampire. And he tries to bite him. Uh, So you would think that he would try that right away. But I guess he figures he has to really get close enough before he can try it. But, yeah, he does a few times uh, remember that he's supposed to be a vampire.
0: Uh, cast and crew stuff we've got. Uh, El Santo, of course, go over plenty. Uh, I've just listed the ones, my personal favourites, uh Santa vs. Zombies, Santo and the Riders of Terror, one I introduced my little brother to and he loves, and Santo vs. the Monsters. I originally got into all this based on a eight-section DVD, uh, which you discovered yourself as well, that you introduced all of them, dubbed, thank God I'm presuming by a Mexican actor. <laughs> it it sounds like a Mexican accent um, which starts off with the Wax Museum and the Riders of Terror on the same DVD remember rightly
1: Yeah, that uh, that's a fairly recent uh, redub into English Uh, it's not the uh, K. Gordon Murray one and that was, yeah, there's a Mexican company, I think it's called Olympusat or something Um, and uh, those if you know Director Robert Rodriguez, still did Sharkboy, El Mariachi, he had a um, cable TV channel and later turned into a streaming channel. I don't know if it's active or not anymore. Um, and it was aimed at people of um, Hispanic heritage in the United States. And he apparently commissioned these new dubs in English of the Santo films for his cable channel. Um, and then they, there's a company that I actually do work for that um, does Blu-rays and DVDs um, that release those um, in the United States on DVD, but they originally were made for um, U.S. cable TV under Robert Rodriguez's channel. So I've never seen any of them. I you know, life's too short. So
0: so you come out well, you know, if you haven't looked back through them. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't have. I would have come out to you otherwise. You do come out really well for it, and it's it's a. there's a lovely introduction for a Brit. For an American, they know wrestling to some extent. I don't know how much luchador culture permeates, but for us, we know literally nothing. It goes as far as like, I know the Olympic style. I've seen that being done at the Commonwealth Games occasionally, but we know nothing in terms of wrestling. So this is like a real jump in the deep end, and it's good to have that push in. So if you are looking to get into Santo, personal recommendation, I would get that DVD. It's like 40 quid for eight films. All of them are pretty decent like introductions in. Blue Demon as well in at least two of them, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, first the monsters and, uh, can't remember the other one. But it's, it's fun stuff. Uh, yeah, Santo stuff we will go into all that. Fernando says, discuss through, um, <laughs> this is where I'm going to really bugger this up. Merce um, Canera, There's no, uh, her debut, I believe, as uh, Silva or Rebecca as well.
1: Yeah, it's a very early film. I, she may have been in small parts in some other films. I can't swear to it. Um, it's interesting because there is, and it's apparently fairly well documented, that uh, there was another actress in that same role, Um an actress named Ana Martin, who would later become fairly famous, did a lot of um, telenovelas as well as films in Mexico. Um, she is still alive. Mechi Carreño, fortunately, passed away fairly recently. But Ana Martin, uh, at the time that the film was being made, she complained to the actors' union saying that the producers were shooting um, nude scenes with Mechi Carreño. Uh, as a nude body double for Anna Martine. So Anna Martine doesn't appear in the film. We are assuming that Mechicareño then replaced her in like the three scenes that she's in. Um, and of course, there's no nude scenes in these films. Um, it would have been for export, but that's um, the, apparently the story there. Mechicareño, um, just a year or so later, would become Uh, very well-known, very famous Mexican actress uh, playing generally uh, sort of sexy but innocent young women um, in a a whole bunch of films, a bunch of them produced by her then-husband, and then later on she married another guy who then directed a bunch of her films. Um, So she is a cult figure in Mexico for, not for this film, but for her films from the mid 60s into the late 70s when she sort of retired for the most part. Um, so yeah, this is an early role for her. She was not really well known at the time. It's the other people in the film, the the billing uh, is rather misleading. On, on the film and on the posters, you'll see, um, Andrea Palma, for example. Andrea Palma's, again, she plays in the colonial sequences, the mother of Rebecca. Andrea Palma was a very famous Mexican actress from the 30s and 40s, and then when she grew older, was a character actress. But she's the star of one of the most famous Mexican films of the early 1930s, La Mujer del Puerto. So she was like I don't know, not Greta Garbo, but you know she was real right up there with the very most famous Mexican actresses of the 1930s and early 1940s in some classic films. And so here, you know, 25 years later, now she's playing, you know, a small part as somebody's mother, but she has enough of a name that she's billed fairly high up um, in the film. The uh, probably the next major characters, uh, the guy who plays um, Don Luis, the mother of Mechicarreño's character in the contemporary sequences, um, that's uh, Manuel Orvide, who's a, a veteran character actor. So um, yeah, these are all mostly professional characters. One of the things that uh, I, I'll mention that uh, I had in my mind before when I saw this, but I did a little more deeper dive when I saw it the other day, was that clearly in the colonial era sequences, which are like 34 minutes, there's a flashback in the middle of film of an 82 minute film. So, you know, 40% of the movie features not El Santo, but El Santo's ancestor, the the Caballero de Plata, um, who wears not the Santo mask, but uh, sort of a face mask, uh, which actually, if you look, if you pay attention, he wears two different kinds of masks in the film. But that's clearly it's not uh, uh, Rodolfo Guzman Huerta, El Santo. It's somebody else. And actually it's probably two other people. One of them is the guy that does the sword fighting. And there's a couple of guys that are credited for sword fighting. But the other one is the actor who plays the caballero, we will call him. He must be a wrestler because he does a lot of fighting in the, the flashback sequences. And I don't think that's the real El Santo even doing the wrestling because he's wearing this mask that covers like half his face. And if it were to have come off during filming, I mean, they wouldn't use it in the film, but still, it would be embarrassing for El Santo. So uh, we mentioned much earlier the Santo's uh, union uh, membership card that has his unmasked face. So I took that and I tried to match it up against freeze frames of Santo in the flashback sequences. And it's clearly not Santo. Santo has kind of Plump lips, and this guy doesn't have plump lips. His chin is entirely different. My guess, and it's just a guess, is that later in the film, towards the end of the film, there's a the wrestling arena sequence where the vampire fights uh, Santo. Um, but before that, the vampire goes into Santo's wrestling room and hypnotizes his Santo's assistant, his corner man. And I am guessing that that's the guy who played the caballero in the flashback sequences. Because if you line up the freeze frames, the bottom half of his face looks pretty interesting. But a long way around to say that Santo apparently only had to show up for the beginning and the end of the movie, because he's not in that middle section. They're pretty clearly somebody else, um, which, once again, it's neither here nor there. It's still quite entertaining. So
0: That's weirdly similar to the other vampire one, uh, Treasure of Dracula with the uh, time machine, where he's in it for 30 minutes, I want to say, of the yeah. hour and a half runtime, yeah. roughly. I guess
1: he figured that was an easy payday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there, there are a, a few of... Animation handful. as well, like, where directors can just yeah. go through it.
1: <laughs> There's a handful of the later ones. Uh, well, actually, late 60s, early 70s, um, that are clearly Santo is only there for a little bit, and that he's impersonated by somebody else, including um, a professional wrestler from Colombia. And if you again, people watching him in the theaters wouldn't necessarily notice. They might say, "Oh, Santo looks like he lost a little weight, you know, but um, those of us who now have it in digital form, yeah, you can clearly just cut and paste and say, you know, is a foot taller and 20 pounds lighter in this scene, or his mask looks completely different. Uh, that's the benefit of being a masked wrestler, is uh, you can have somebody double you, and it's not necessarily going to be that obvious.
0: Just a presumption, then. Some of the films I know he's nearly unmasked. I'm presuming that's someone else.
1: Oh, uh, and the, yeah, there's some... Santo in The Invasion of the Martians, where you see him from behind. It's just a dream sequence, but... One of the Martian women takes off his mask. And then uh, Acha Diabolica, which is another Vergara one, has a similar scene. He's he's parked in a car with his girlfriend. And uh, he says, you know, you'll be the first and last person ever to see me without my mask. And he takes it off. Once again, clearly it's not him. The hair is completely different. And you can sort of see the side of his face. Cheekbones are different. So, yeah, I mean, Santo wasn't going to take his mask off so that the whole crew could see who he was. Uh, Allegedly, uh, or maybe apocryphally, he did travel quite a bit and allegedly when he came to the United States, uh, he would come with his crew, his posse, um, and he would make them go through customs first, and then they were gone, and then he could take his mask off and have his passport with his face on it. And so he could go through customs And then as soon as he cleared customs, he put his mask back on so people wouldn't know. Uh, know, It's your your livelihood, your business. There's a story that Blue Demon, both of them could walk around the streets of Mexico without their masks. That was one of the big advantages of being, nobody knew who you were, but they said Blue Demon, he was known as manotas, which means big hands. Blue Demon, they said he was paranoid that even though he wasn't wearing his mask, that people would see his big hands and say, hey, aren't you a blue demon?
0: Well. <laughs> I think that's so, it's died completely. <laughs> I think chances of that in the modern era as well. It's a real shame. There's no way he'd have got away with that now. <laughs> yeah, <You, laughs> The minutes it would be his face online, TMZ would be going nuts over it. Yeah. that's yeah. It's something beautiful about that. So yeah, uh, Baron Brekova, uh, 1965, I believe. Uh, it said something about 67 nope. release somewhere. I, I think pretty certainly that it is the 65 one originally. Uh, it's yep. starting off with a Baron waking up and you get that. It comes with the budget again, this makeup sequence. There's five different freeze frames going through uh, different forms of makeup which takes a lot of effort Um, I know myself that any short I've done, the makeup's always been a ridiculously expensive side of it and takes forever to get through and looks good in this as well. It kind of goes for a Boris Karlov-esque uh, with the vampire teeth, what is coming out. There's some snap zooms as well coming in on the various objects, which clearly... Yeah, that's,
1: inter- that's interesting because when I first saw that again for the first time in years yesterday, I was like, oh no, it's going to be zoom crazy. But really, you don't see much, I mean, those are uh, guests who say, ooh, spooky, look at this mask <laughs> on the wall. But he D- Diaz Morales doesn't do it much at all in the later rest of the film. He's not uh, Zoom crazy. He's not uh, Jess Franco or somebody like that. I think that comes
0: again to the, where you're talking about the 100 foot up in the air, almost like a little kid playing with toys on the ground. It's just he had full reign to do what he wanted because it wasn't this massive union project and so he went nuts with as many different let's try this let's see how this works let's try this different angle here and there um, with all the fight segments let's let him climb up there and see how that shoots out I, i can imagine there's a lot of on the fly let's see what works
1: and these are professionals even though once you get into the actual crew a number of those people have very few credits if you look on IMDB, but I suspect that is because they were part of this uh, STIC union that didn't make a lot of feature films. In fact, for many years, they were forbidden to make feature films as part of their deal with the other union. So they made uh, short films, newsreels, commercials, uh, television programs, and so uh, the cinematographer of this film doesn't have a lot of credits, but he probably was very experienced, just not on feature films. And so there's nothing particularly uh, amateurish about this. And jumping back to the makeup, yeah, it is fairly good. It's fairly extensive, um, and which is a bit surprising at times, because since Mexico didn't uh, have uh, a large number, well, I guess by this time, they'd been making a fair number of horror movies for almost a decade, but they didn't have a lot of special effects technicians or spe- particularly makeup technicians. So it was these guys were sort of figuring it out. Um, at least they're not using uh, off the, the uh, shelf monster masks like you do see in some Mexican movies, I guess that was just cheap that they couldn't afford to do that. But yeah, the makeup is kind of interesting. Um, and if you compare, there are a couple of sequences where Fernando says doesn't have makeup, you know, before he turns into a vampire. And he looks very different. Yeah, I mean, they, they have no nose is different. His, his cheeks are puffed out. Um, he's wearing a wig. Uh, so yeah, he looks sort of unintelligent or dopey, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty good. Um, he, he, in other words, he looks like he's not very smart, but that doesn't mean the makeup is bad. So.
0: No, he, he transformed like a Vincent Price almost looking guy before it, a young Vincent Price into, yeah, like a Hill savage vampire coming yeah. out, <laughs> which it, it fits the bill. It, it's what they needed for someone to be beaten down and to have this kind of awful evil, um, and to have the stakes as well no pun intended but stake to have the stakes of silver this is what she's going to be you know, set to for her entire life so you have to have that awful abysmal kind of dismal dark vampire yeah. pushing up uh, which I think
1: you I th- get, uh, there's a, a foreshadowing of that in the middle sequence where Rebecca becomes a vampire and she gets the dark circles under her eyes and she gets the vampire teeth um, one thing that impressed me, and again, this is something I just noticed, there's uh, the portrait, which you see very early in the film. It plays a large part because it has a little letter that you move that opens the secret door. But the portrait of Rebecca, I had never noticed before, after she becomes a vampire, the portrait changes. And she's, you know, the original portrait, she's a sweet young woman, when she's a vampire, the portrait changes and she's a vampire evil looking in the portrait. And then at the end of the film, when she dies and the curse is lifted, it changes back to her sweet face in the painting. I mean, that's a little touch that shows some uh, you know, imagination, some care, that they didn't just use the same picture, that they gave you this sort of portrait of Dorian Gray type of thing, where they changed the image uh, of a picture. So,
0: Yeah, I've got to hope that the castle's kind of supernaturally pushing around. It's not. The vampire's got nothing better to do, just slowly painting away and rubbing down as he goes for it. It's (laughs)
1: magic. How did it happen? It's magic. So the same thing with why does the end of the film, Santo goes to Bracula's hideout uh, and catches him, okay? He uses a map to do that. It's interesting that in the 200 years between the flashback sequence and the end of the film, which is set in 1965, that nobody bought that house. House didn't fall down. All the furniture is still available. Why? Because it's magic, it's a magic vampire mansion and that's why it's the same it was as it was 200 years before so.
0: Prophecy holding it up, keeping it together because <laughs> you've got this whole thing going on. Same with the uh, tattoo in uh, Treasure of Dracula, which very very similar actually coming through now I think about it, there's so many like parallels when you go over that stuff with uh, the back and forth as well. same looking girl, same looking actress, the two of them. Yeah, this entire segment is, for me personally, I think it's the favourite uh, old castle of Sin seen done in the mm-hmm. vampire women, the Santo vs. the vampire women, or if you're Italian, I think it's uh, Santo el Vampiro el Sexo. Looking around, I don't think I want to know. That's utterly bizarre. Um, it had this tiny, awful, like, model thing in the distance, very House on the Hill-esque. Back in going back like Vincent Price or old Dracula Christopher Lee era, where you have this Transylvania mansion, which uh, uh, that always looked too modelly to me. I think using in this one, it was used a lot better.
1: My assumption is uh, that the interior were sets and that the exterior are actual. Mexico has a lot of old buildings sitting around, so it's just an actual old building. And if you went into the Actual building in real life, it probably has, you know, electricity and TVs and carpets on the floor. But uh, as long as you're just using exterior, but yeah, the little model castles, uh, again, you you don't have special effects uh, experts uh, with a lot of experience, and so they just sort of do the best they can. Uh, and if the filmmakers are smart, they limit it. And they try not to make it, let's set this toy castle on fire, but wait, you can't miniaturize flames. And so it's going to look completely unrealistic. Well, who cares? We'll just set it on fire, even though it'll look terrible. So this film, they yeah, they get away with uh, not having uh, to do that sort of thing. And no special effects sometimes are better than bad special effects.
0: Yeah, I, I know George Lucas. In this country, obviously, we're lucky that we have castles just lying around here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. I'm, I went to see a play by, there's a comedian in our country, uh, Miles Jupp, who does you know, the circuits for the Mock um, the Week type things. And he did a play based on the life of David Tomlinson, which was fascinating. There's a bit of a tangent, but uh, and he talked... David Tomlinson, who was in Mary Poppins and that kind of stuff back in the day. He talked to Walt Disney... And Walt Disney said about our country, said, you yeah, know, it's, uh, it, it's wonderful. It's like Disney World where you see all the castles around. And Tomlinson turned around and says, yes, it is very much like Disney World, except it's not faking crap. <laughs> <laughs> you got, to, I've got to appreciate the balls on the guy to say that to the biggest name in film at the time.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Mexico, the, the cases they have are absolutely beautiful. And a lot of the works they did back then. I mean, I was watching, um, oh god the the western film uh, The Wild Bunch uh, mm-hmm. a little bit back and that makes use of the, the native scenery incredibly well it's wonderful and even in Santo you know the uh, Riders uh, Riders of Terror where it uses the native just land beautifully and in this it uses a lot of the old cases magically like the fight the Zorroesque esque thing that goes mm-hmm. through where they're jumping up and down through the balconies um, it, it's using what they have yeah limiting as you said Yeah, and then we get our, uh, in honour of yourself, our five-minute toilet break segment, the wrestling part, where we've got just a good 15 minutes, I think it was, because I was re-looking for it and making my notes after watching it. It's insanely long.
1: Yeah, you know, you have to... I will give them a certain amount of credit. They know their audience, and so presumably... And the other thing is, at least in this film, there are actually jumping around. There are actually a few of the later Santo films um, which have virtually no wrestling, arena wrestling sequences. So apparently they said forget it, it's too boring. But there's actually some, a handful of them in the mid 70s where they shot the wrestling sequences in a studio against like a green or blue background. It looks terrible. It's even more boring because you can't see. At least in this film, you see it's shot in an actual uh, Coliseum. There's real people watching. They're cheering El Santo. Um, so, yeah, some of the inserts are the actual actors, but it's it gives you a feel of the actual uh, arena wrestling experience and how Santo was such a big star in that aspect. And so, yeah, you know, the other thing that's good about this film is really only this, and then the end uh, where he's fighting the vampire in the ring. the The wrestling is very good. It's very quick. It's very active. Santo is is at a very good point in his physical conditioning. There's a lot of action. It goes very fast. You know, people are jumping, kicking, punching. You know, after a while, you get. Well, just knock him out or whatever. But yeah, this—it's—it's it's not as bad as some, but it really uh, doesn't advance the plot at all. Have a few little cutaways. Oh, look, Santo—he's uh, my idol or something—and then and Don Luis is there, looking very worried or even sort of sinister manner. Although you later find out he's a good guy. But uh, yeah, it's—you know—it's. Uh, it's it is what it is, you know. I I like to try to spot, you know, see who he's wrestling. Some of these people I recognize, but yeah, uh, my notes I wrote very long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in terms of plot progression, that uh, there's some character in there. If you haven't seen Santo before, like where you get the audience helping him at times, where he's being kicked out of the arena, um, and you have them punching at the. Uh, the antagonist for the heel, if that's a term in wrestling. And Santo waits on the side as the two kick the everlasting hell out of his uh, partner through that and then beat his wrestlers. So I, I suppose it creates a bit of a dynamic, but that's a given if you haven't ever seen a Santo film before. Otherwise, it's largely unnecessary. And yeah, there's this uh, Don Luis stuff. There's a really funny kind of back and forth, I think, between uh, Silver and her partner, I think Eduardo. Where she says, Oh yeah, I find myself infatuated. Not in that way, don't worry. <laughs> you have to make point poor I mean, poor guy. I mean if she's into Santa there's no chance you've <laughs> got mate.
1: Don't be jealous of El Santo. So.
0: <laughs> so yeah, if she's she's after El Santo, there's nothing you can do. Uh-huh. world Drone wrestler who can fight vampires and werewolves and you're an accountant. With a fifteen minutes through we get going to modern day, coming out uh, and then, yeah, pretty much straight after the first wrestling segment, we get this, like, 100 metres in the air segment down on a fight between Santo, uh, the Don Luis um, caretaker with a gun out that doesn't work, which I really liked, like showing Santo <laughs> kind of beats down this gun, does nothing at all, and then the vampire coming around uh, with all his glory.
1: Don, Don Luis is keeps shouting... The stake, use the stake, and yet then he tries a gun. I mean, you know that you got to use a stake. I mean, he's clearly he didn't have silver bullets or anything like that. So I guess he figured out oh, well, what's it going to hurt. You know, I'll just fire at him. But uh, use the stake, use the stake.
0: Yeah, which Santo uh, ignores. Yeah, most of it going through. Uh, it's a bit of shoveish. I imagine that's kind of the Santo side of it. Going, oh, I want to do a bit of wrestling. I've got my old friend here. We're going to go for a good five, 10 minutes, push through a bit again, like audience. That's what they want to see. It's the whole yeah. like modern superhero. You've got Superman and um, Zod just punching each other endlessly through the city. It's kind of a spectacle, the like, Transformers stuff where you get to see these cities blow up. That's the equivalent on a, granted a much lower budget scale, uh, much more fun to watch for myself at least seeing Dracula just get punted around. Uh, that's, I know it's called um, Bracola. Is there any uh, relevance to that? Or is that just a name that was just picked out to not do Dracula?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, uh, let's change a couple of, uh, consonants and it'll be close <laughs> enough. You know. But I don't know why they, Dracula, you can't copyright that name. Clearly they used it for treasure of Dracula. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's alliterative, so maybe they wanted, you know, they could, I guess they could have Duke Dracula, Duque Dracula, um, but yeah, Baron Bracula, it's, it's alliterative, it sounds enough. Um, seems to me there's one, there's a Spanish horror movie from the early 70s uh, that has one of the alternate titles, its also as Bracula in there, but... Uh, yeah, I don't think it really means
0: anything. So. I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised it if it was a copyright issue. Was, I think Dracula was published 1987, roughly uh, 1897, sorry, ish, somewhere around there or before. <laughs> I might be off on my dates, and I know that's within the 80 years. I don't know if that came under that at the time, or if Mexico was exempt with the whole uh, lines of. Uh, the yeah, there,
1: stuff. you know there are examples where uh, Mexican film producers, I think, figured nobody will ever notice, and so there are examples well into the 80s where they borrow not only plots, but they borrow footage and uh, music and, and things like that, uh, saying, you know, well, who will ever notice? so um, but yeah I, I don't know I mean there's there's yeah there's no cultural in joke or anything like that for Bracola it's just something somebody thought of so it's always worth as far as I know yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: within that after that we get the conversation between and there's about a 30 minute segment in the middle that goes back to kind of colonial era I know they said um, it's taking New Spain not Mexico at the times, conquistador yeah Oh, after Conquistador, what am I saying? I'm presuming 1800s? I'm not too... No, it's it's 1765.
1: 1765. So it gives you that 200-year period between the the back and the... uh, the, Between the bookends and then the center of the film. So there are um, 200 years there. So uh, that that happens a a number of times in Mexican movies. Sometimes it gets a little um, weird if you've ever seen the Brainiac, uh, Baron del Terror. uh, And then there's also, um, I think that jumps forward to 1961 from like 1761. Um, But there's one, and I think it's Living Head, Cabeza Viviente, where You know, it starts and don't hold me. It starts in 1761 and then jumps forward to 1963. Why did it do 202 years? You know, it's it's weird, but this, it's yes, it's exactly 200 years. Although they don't, there's no oh, 200 years from now I'll return or something like that. It's just a coincidence, I guess. Uh It is never explained why uh, Baron Bracula suddenly wakes up in 1965, you know? What's he been doing for 200 years? They, they make a, a attempt to say uh, in the flashback sequence, uh, the vampire will go dormant for a period of time, but they don't say 200 years. So it's just a coincidence, apparently, that he wakes up in 1965.
0: So. I suppose you come back to the magical thing. You can smell that, uh, Silver's up and ready. She looks creepily like her great great grandmother.
1: Yeah, I guess.
0: God, that'd be terrifying if just your daughter lineage looked exactly the same all the way down. It'd be horrifying. You'd have to question what, what kind of curse have I had laid on my family? Dear God.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, the conversation back and forth. Goes into the old colonial era and we get some fun, kind of Zorroesque esque, uh, segments with the silver, I think, silver knight or that. I think they yep. said with rapiers fighting back and forth. A conversation with the baron where the baron's basically uh, to use modern vernacular is a simp, more or less. He comes in, he's just rejected immediately by everyone there. They just tell him to bugger off.
1: Uh, I'll get you.
0: It's a little sad honestly it's like a little simpering puppy who just goes to another country to find this girl uh, and then is just told go away and he says yeah I'll, I'll get incel to borrow another just <laughs> term from modern times
1: but you know it's interesting then the next sequence after that which takes place in the cantina which has the bar girl who does the dance and she flirts and then the baron says, you know, I'll meet you later on, here's a sack of gold. And then they're together in the room and she says, all right, let's get down to business. And then he bites her on the neck. But at this point, he's not a vampire. Why? You know, he doesn't become a vampire until he's stabbed by the Silver Knight in the following sequence. And then he staggers around and falls into his coffin then you see him convert into the vampire, but when he bites the barmaid, he doesn't look like a vampire, he still looks his right yourself. so I mean, maybe he just, that was his particular kink at that time, and then it just, when he died, that carried over and became his vampire kink, I don't know, so uh, but that is a curious bit. Uh, and I'm also a little suspicious, I mentioned earlier, the the stories about the alleged nude scenes, whether it seems like this would have been one good opportunity for a nude scene, like he takes the barmaid's blouse off or something, but uh, you know, we may never know.
0: I, I suppose it's lucky then he became a vampire and didn't just turn into a weird werewolf going around biting necks so out. That was his yes, thing. Yeah. Yeah, with the nude scenes, I and mean, they don't do anything here. I don't know if they were cut out, because I know Santo himself didn't like them. He definitely, oh, El Vampiro El Sexo is the big one I know he was against, but um, it wasn't released like that in Mexico at the time. So maybe there was some influence, certainly with his circle of friends. He he had the influence, I'd imagine, to be able to push against that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, Although, if it was just for export, he probably wouldn't care as much, because Vampiro y el Sexo was released internationally um, and there are stills available from uh, Santo y Blue Demon uh, Contra los Monstros, in which Santo does appear with topless actresses in multiple scenes. Uh, Unfortunately, that version appears to be a lost film, uh, or at least it hasn't surfaced so far. But there are very clearly scenes where, as I said, stills exist that were shot in uh, alternate versions. Um, And Santo's right there. It's not like uh, Vampiro El Sexo where he's, he's nowhere around. So I guess it's not beyond the realm of possibility that maybe it was a Santo double, but it seems like that would have been Know, sort of counterproductive to go behind your star's back and have somebody impersonate him for scenes that he wouldn't do. But, uh, and then uh, Riders of Terror was made in a, a nude scenes version too, which I actually saw a semi-restored version uh, in February at the Rotterdam Film Festival. But that goes back to the vampire and sex version Where Santo's nowhere around. There's three sex scenes, but Santo's not involved in any of them. So, um, but yeah, there's a number of them uh, that are not confirmed. Uh, There's at least one blue demon which stills exist, etc. But yeah, in Mexico, particularly in '65, uh, and even up to the late '60s, um, nudity was largely prohibited. And then, when you get to about 1970, censorship was uh, not removed, but it was lightened up, and so you begin to have a lot of nude scenes in Mexican films uh, in the 70s, particularly first half of the 70s. Not in the Santo films, not so much. But uh, so my I would guess that if there were uh, nude scenes shot for Baron Bracula, that they were strictly for an export version which uh, I've never seen any proof other than this one contemporary you know 1965 newspaper uh, article so um, it's a little better than hearsay but uh, there's no physical proof of it so
0: I doubt they have added anything either way anyway um, so no, no. not gratuitous probably but there's no Necessity for it. Uh, oh, it's always with the vampire mythos you get this, uh, element of underlying sexual tension. Certainly when you go into the 90s, later on in the 80s with, um, into the vampire film wise and Dracula itself, you know, going all the way back to the books. But I, yeah, it wouldn't have done much for this. Uh, it's not, it's a shame it's lost. It's always a shame when everything's lost to time. I'm not overly fussed. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, We get a a slight insight as well into the vampire condition, which I'm assuming people had an idea about. Obviously, it's not as saturated as it is in modern culture, and I have no real way of knowing for the the 60s to 50s people in Mexico going into the theatre how much they knew about vampires, uh, how much exposure they'd had.
1: There was actually a fair number of Mexican films that... Uh, dealt specifically with vampires or had significant uh, vampire characters uh, up to this point, which is 65. Um, and then many more followed. I uh, think that Hammer films, well, Horror of Dracula was much earlier, but you've got um, uh, the subsequent Christopher Lee ones, which start again in the mid 60s and run into the 70s. Um, so, yeah, in uh, 66, you have uh, Imperio de Dracula, uh, Santo and Blue Demon versus the Monsters, Treasure of Dracula, Santo and the Vengeance of the Vampire Women, um, Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula, and Wolfman, um, and then you know, up to this point, there's a Western called uh, Pueblo Fantasma, there's La uh, Macabra, which has um, a little vampire kid. Um, there's Vampire Santo versus Vampire Women, of course. Um, El Vampiro, Vampire's Coffin. Castle of the Monsters, which is a comedy but has a vampire. So, yeah, they were familiar. And plus, you do, um, Mexican audiences probably saw more international films than Mexican films in this period, because that's what will be shown in cinemas. So uh, so it always has been, it probably always will be. Um, So yeah, they uh, were probably uh, really up on Mexican, uh, Mexican audiences were up on vampires. I don't think there was any prior to El Vampiro in 1957, none that I can think of. But, uh, you know, once after that, uh, everybody was was vampire-intelligent.
0: Uh, Floodgates opening up, similar to just modern-day stuff, endless streams. Yeah. yeah. Uh, fair enough. Uh, with all I mean, this stuff, it's explained. to so extent. with the vampire mythos, there's always changes when you go back to, certainly the modern-day forms. There's so many different formations now, I suppose, because it, format got old you've got I'm talking from a western perspective obviously uh, 30 Days a Night coming through Uh, with the zombie-esque stuff you've got the um, romantic French side with Interview you've got Lost Boys Near Dark from Bigelow uh, and obviously all going all the way back you get the different stuff the weird East. <laughs> I don't know if you said it there's a, a Hammer House they mixed with an eastern martial arts thing and they had uh, Peter Cushing in it Legend of the Seven yeah. Rings or something.
1: Which was- I actually saw that in the cinema when it first came out. Uh, I was rather disappointed, but the American version uh, apparently was was fairly significantly cut. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do remember Seven Brothers Meet Dracula uh, was I think that was its title in the USA. But uh, yeah, that was underwhelming.
0: Yeah, bizarre choice. And, yeah, it, they cut the Eastern stuff out a lot, which is a shame to watch Cushing kind of do a Santo and just, I don't know, roundhouse kick Dracula in the face. Yeah. There's a little boy in me that's just squealing yeah. through that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the vampire stuff in Santo tends to be, from what I found at least, fairly consistent with uh, the mythos. There's the hypnotism, which is present through pretty much all of them, uh, going through the ones of Sin uh, and the blood drinking of course the bats is always ever present. Uh, Ecstasy of the Kiss that classic staple is linked in there and they're kind of um, not slave but uh, I can't remember, like vampire spawn that they get where you have a vampire under you that's kind of you bite into them and they become this uh, spawn of yourself that is linked to you.
1: Yeah, and of course the Mexico nominally... I guess is a catholic country and so the cross slash crucifix um, which in santo versus the vampire women has that great sequence where one of the vampire guys is running along the street and he comes around the corner there's a gigantic stone cross and he he sees it and he screams and he bursts into flames uh, in this film one thing that you know there's the crucifix issue where after uh, the baron has bitten Sylvia one time and Santo brings the crucifix and says put this on you know and then the baron comes in the second time and he screams when he sees Sylvia has the crucifix and then Sylvia screams and then Sylvia's housekeeper or whatever she screams too they're all screaming the vampires screaming like a little girl but the, the thing that You know, I I hate to nitpick and I don't like to, you know, make fun or whatever, but there is the sequence where, in the flashback, where Baron Bracula goes and he digs up Rebecca's body from her grave, and then he carries it away and puts it in the crypt in his house. Well, when he digs it up in the cemetery, there are dozens of headstones around that have crosses on them. It's like, they don't bother you, vampire, you know? And yet when he sees it later on, he screams. Uh, so, you know, it's it, no use to be entirely nitpicking about inconsistency, but yeah, the the idea that you're protected by a cross, I guess is, is fairly universal until you get to, Uh, Roman Polanski's uh, Dance of the Vampires which is like 67 where you have a Jewish vampire and the woman holds up a cross and he's like, you picked the wrong (laughs) vampire lady.
0: I I think you are right though. It's a missed opportunity really for the cemetery because you could have kind of introduced the hypnotism, you could have introduced the um, cross side kind of more organically than talking about it because you could have got to grave diggers and say do this saw a cross, yeah. had to run back and had that kind of, you know, the whole um, oh god thingy's gone <laughs> I'm forgetting the whole cinematic uh, Chekhov's gone, where you have the thing there yeah. you kind of set it all up and ready I, I know that the cross thing's died out somewhat now as well um, I imagine in Mexico they're still massively Catholic, there's got to be a an underlying continuation there but Most of the UK, at least on our side, we're, I think, 50% atheists now, so it's died in our culture, more or less.
1: There are certainly, probably in Mexico, and I haven't looked it up lately, but it was that uh, a fair number of majority uh, at least profess to be Catholic, but whether they're observant or not is another issue. But you do get another specifically Mexican and Catholic reference towards the end of the film where Santo is going to find the map that tells him where Baron Bracula goes. And so first he has one map that tells him where to find the second map. And where is the second map? It is at a place where the vampire could not get to, and that is hidden underneath a painting of the Virgin of Guadalupe. So the Virgin Mary, and Mexico's patron saint. So. There you get a very specifically Mexican reference there. Uh, And I was waiting to see if Santo would like cross himself, Um, but no, he just sort of looks up at the uh, painting of the Virgin of Guadalupe, and then takes the the map that tells him where to find Baron Bracoa, so.
0: Uh, Pure curiosity, um, what was the age rating for this, you know? I know they have a weird system in Mexico where they go like A, B, C, D. Was this for like everyone?
1: this was rated A which was all audiences okay
0: that's yeah I was just wondering with the Virgin Mary stuff if that's kind of like family values equivalent in Mexico and the nudity stuff just in my head thinking that's why it's exported out and not left in uh, Mexico because it's this big cultural okay. good to know
1: so yeah in Mexico uh, it was A, B, C, D which is A is all audiences B is you know I don't know 12 and above, and don't hold me to that. C was 18 and above, and D was uh, adults only or something like that. Most of the Santo films were rated A. Uh, There are a handful of them that for some reason, and I'm not really sure, based on looking at them, there's nothing that really jumps out at me why they would have been rated B instead of A. But in Mexico, they were... Chiefly uh, intended for all audiences, as opposed you know, even crime films about, you know, drug dealers with people getting killed or vampires biting people, uh, you know, it's still going to be all audiences. Um, for that was what they were aimed at. So.
0: That's, yeah, it's just a lot and a, a real difference to what you get. I mean, to be fair, we get awful stuff that we show kids back in the 60s. Watership Down is the big one we always bring up as if you want to terrify your children at a young age. I know America has the same stuff, like stuff you can show you little kids to just traumatize them for no apparent reason and ruin their uh, childhood, ruin their night's sleep. But uh, Santo, yeah, the, the equivalent to some
1: extent. Well, I mean, I, one of the films that made it, even though I was a, uh, a very high teenager probably at the time, Probably 18, maybe. Anyway, a television movie made for television called Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which was remade theatrically a number of years ago. But the original television version, it has what I consider to be an existentially (laughs) creepy ending. And I'm 18 years old, but this is what's shown on television. Now, and this was in the days when there was no television ratings, but I guess they figured... You know, if it was shown at eight o'clock at night, little real little kids would have been asleep already. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, things change in terms of what's acceptable and what's not. Um, and it's also cultural as well. I mean, the, I would see Mexican films on Mexican cable TV, and they would leave in Nudity and leave in profanity, but sometimes edit violence. Because apparently they had a you know less of a tolerance for violence.
0: It's just for my films, but yeah, I don't
1: you know the, the Santo films. As I said, there's there's at least one that I'm I'm really questioning why it got a, a more restrictive rating, uh, and I can't really explain it. But generally they're rated A. So.
0: Yeah, didn't that all infatuation stuff with Rebecca? Bit in she undergoes this whole metamorphosis to vampire slavery, similar again to *Treasure of Dracula*, uh, which has I want to I say a poignant scene, certainly in *Treasure of Dracula*, where they they have to discuss we have to stake her to save her soul from Satan to bring her back to the Catholic light. In this one, it's very much a, yeah, we have to do this, and then it's just clunk. That's done. Yeah. <laughs> That's in. Uh, nice and ready to go and look through the the castle as well um, which has this massive wooden door, safe room because again, Bracula uh, Bracola is a bit of a coward for a lot of this The coffin from what I gathered was next to Rebecca's but he just run away and hid himself behind a door
1: uh, My impression was that there are two rooms one of them is Rebecca's room underneath her portrait. And you, you twist the R, you get the door to open. But across the hall is Bracula's crypt, I guess, because when he first, he's stabbed by the Silver Knight. And so then he sort of staggers back and falls in his coffin and turns into a vampire. and but apparently he already had his coffin prepared, and in fact, over the door, it already has his birth and death dates, so apparently he already knew he was going to die in 1765. But then the Silver Knight can't get into that room. Uh, He's banging on it and he can't after he's already killed or staked Rebecca. Then at the end of the film, when it's contemporary, yeah, Santo is, goes into Rebecca's crypt first and sees she's a pile of rags with a stake in it. Nothing to see here, but there's a bat. The bat flies out and it's unclear, but it looks like the bat flies across the hall and somehow opens the door and this, so that Santo can go in. And then Bracula has turned into a person and jumps Santo from behind. So yeah, it's a little bit unclear. There's a certain amount of toing and froing where people, you know, go from one place to another for no particular reason. But uh, that's my reading of it.
0: Might as well touch on the bats while it's been mentioned. Uh, they're <laughs> an interesting addition. I think it's safe to say as as good as I imagine they could have done it is how I'm going to
1: put they're it not, generously. They're not as bad as some, but they're worse than some. Probably the greatest Mexican vampire movie bat would be uh, in The Bloody Vampire, where it's huge. It looks like, uh, if you ever know what like a, a flying fox looks like, an actual animal. I mean, it probably has a five foot wingspan, and it has light bulb eyes and a very snarly mouth with a lot of teeth in it. And it gets pinned to the wall by a javelin. So that's probably the greatest one. But yeah, this is your typical rubber bat on a string uh, in most most of the shots.
0: I just so. had a Google of it, it's horrifying. It's like yeah. a, a proto, like the Donnie Darko rabbit with wings yeah, attached yeah, to it.
1: It has to be one of the greatest bats, so.
0: With massive, like, white eyes, That And it
1: actually, it's, I think it's on a string and flies back and forth a couple of times, uh, you know, trying to get the hero. And then when it flies back, that's when he throws the stake and pins it to the wall. So, yes, th- that actually, that, there's a two-film series, "Bloody Vampire" and "Invasion of the Vampires," which is uh, really excellent. Uh, no wrestlers involved. Uh, there, it's a linked series, uh, and it's a really, really fine pair of films that I cannot recommend highly enough. I think at least "Bloody Vampire" is in a dubbed version, which I, I don't recommend if, if you're not unless you can't find a subtitled version uh i wouldn't i don't recommend the dubbed ones so
0: I that's that's those are the two films and i hope that everyone's going to tell me to do next yeah, yeah that's the rabbit um, hole those are,
1: those are really quite interesting it's good that and really very well made films well directed good cast etc so. uh,
0: yeah jumping back within this stuff uh Silver Mask, the Baron, they all fall in and then Rebecca now acting as a vampire um, which I think, I think she did a very good job. Between acting as Silver, which is very I don't want to say pathetic, a little bit, a lot to be fair, but Rebecca has a certain underlying definitely a servant energy to her but uh, some sinisterness the eyes kind yeah. of contorting
1: Yeah, I didn't remember that from before either and I actually did a little research yesterday on the uh, performer who plays Rebecca. Uh, her name is Susie Robles. And this appears to have been her only uh, film role. She was uh, a cheesecake model. Um, so there's a number of pictures of her on the web, you know, in, in lingerie, et cetera. And she also, um, in the beginning of the mid 60s, well, up into the 80s, maybe in the 90s, there was um, a publishing phenomenon in Mexico, um, not to be confused with the Santo photo comics and things like that, but there were photo novelas, which were uh, actors posing and then they pasted it up in comic book format. Uh, and these were original stories, they were not film adaptations, although there were some of those earlier. And so there was a whole uh, industry of regular actors, I mean, you know, people who were in movies and TV shows would pick up extra money by going and posing for these photographs that were posted up uh, into a comic book story, Uh, and hundreds or thousands of issues were published in a 20, 25 year period. And Susie Robles apparently had a fair career doing that as well. Basically, once again, she was a model and didn't really have to act that much. they just say, oh, here, shake the man's hand. Now look horrified. And they just took still photos. Um, So that's the most I know about her, but she does do a pretty good job. It, It is sort of a surprise when uh, she becomes a vampire woman, and instead of saying to Baron Dracula, "You jerk, you killed me and turned me into a vampire," she's like, "I'm your slave." And so, uh, and she has, uh, you know, a, a nice look about her with the makeup and the fangs, etc. So, yeah, that's uh, she does a a pretty good job. That's an, an interesting aspect uh, to the film.
0: You get the pre as well, obviously, where she goes between the vampire form. I know there are some changes, eyeshadow and stuff beyond just like taking out the fake teeth, uh, pushing around.
1: Yeah, and as I said, and then to me the the revelation uh, when I saw it again yesterday about the the two portraits, um, it's really interesting. If you look at it again, just like I said, it's she's you know beginning of the film before you've even seen her, you see her portrait. She's a you know, attractive young woman in an old style gown, etc. And then when she turns into a vampire, she, the portrait, she has this sinister look. And you don't really see her big fangs, but it looks like she has a little fangs. But she just looks like a horrible person. Uh, so that really impressed me that they went to trouble to have two portraits painted, uh, which I got to give them a lot of credit for. So.
0: No, that's a lot. If you, if you can see it through, I mean, it's using the most of uh, what you have. In the small space, if you can add this little bit, if you can find a way to come yeah. in something else, that's the way to do it.
1: It's, there's a mid-70s Mexican vampire film, Mary Mary, Bloody Mary with John Carradine. Um, and in that film, and John Carradine has a real, I mean, a one or two day role. But anyway, there's a a portrait of his character, as a vampire in that film and it looks like you know a fourth grade or third grade student did in art <laughs> class it's terrible <laughs> these in this film they're perfectly good portraits
0: so. no it's, it's really beautiful i can only remember that yeah. i'll have to look in for the vampire one uh quickly you, don't, you know this.
1: they don't they don't smack you with it but you can definitely see it um so yeah it, it, go back and and take a look at that um like I said, even at the very end, you see the evil one, and then when Van- when she's staked by Santo, then the next time you see the portraits, back to the, the good portraits. So. I'm
0: going to have to jump back, yeah, because at the end as well, you see the portrait after he moves the R over, and then that's all the good one as well, obviously, two yeah, yeah. after the spiders have uh, cobwebbed over everything, really. Yeah, yeah and
1: then <laughs> it actually it falls down after uh at the very end where santo is coming out of her crypt and is getting ready to fight bracula uh, i guess it's foreshadowing that her portrait falls off the wall and lands on the floor so uh, and there you can see very clearly that's the good portrait is back so
0: yeah but we get to the future after all this uh yeah, or put in the format of someone telling a story of what happened 200 odd years ago, and um, which is again another kind of mainstay. There's a lot of ancestral uh, kind of horror stuff going on. A lot of the Santo stuff and some of the Mexican horror films I've happened to catch over the years. It's a it's a big mainstay within the point. He immediately he talks about the whole uh, hypnosis stuff and immediately gets hypnotized. Just instantly as the little bats flying there yeah. menacingly comes in <laughs> tell me the location of your daughter and writes it out nice and neatly I've, I've always thought in some of these films, I and mean, you know about the cross you know about the mistletoe you think just maybe sprinkle some elsewhere, just go nuts yeah. with it it's a cross I mean,
1: have like five crosses around your neck in case one of them falls off, you know, but uh I like the bit, I guess, it's sort of fan service, but where Santo's talking to Don Luis and, uh, you know, Don Luis says, here I have this map, and uh, Santos says, "Uh, I'll go into it, I'll examine it more closely after I wrestle (laughs) the championship tonight. It's like your daughter's life is in mortal danger the vampire is going to get us all. But first things first, I have to go wrestle for the championship. And then, of course, it's Baron Bracula, which is weird, because if it's for the World Championship, why would Santo be wrestling this unknown wrestler for the championship? You know, he got a, a chance to wrestle for the championship, even though we don't really know who he is at all.
0: So. I've got to give it to them, they they have a line in there, something like there's no photo of the man, or it came up with nothing. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's, you know, uh, I mean, clearly he's intended to have taken someone else's place. So, but then that still means that the guy he replaced was also an unknown wrestler who's getting a chance to wrestle for the championship. But uh, I I find it interesting that uh, Fernando says doesn't wear... His complete vampire makeup when he's wrestling in the ring, but he's wearing some makeup, so at least uh, they made some attempt to make him look different than a normal person when he's wrestling. So. so, I mean, in terms
0: of where they've had to splice in wrestling scenes, it's it's not terrible. I've seen I've seen far worse Santo films trying to push wrestling in in some weird way. The, the one that always comes to mind, my personal favorite, and uh, Riders of Terror, where at the start he's fighting for charity or something, giving it to nuns and, that's just randomly shoved in. I, I don't know if any of the others are even worse, at just kind of having to put wrestling in somewhere. Yeah, I
1: mean, and that's in Riders of Terror. It's also more or less anachronistic because professional wrestling really didn't start till 1920s or 1930s. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, you had Greco roaming wrestling in the the old-time Olympics, et cetera. But this is clearly it's just regular wrestling in a ring, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that's that's forcing it in there because it is anachronistic. I think you have a similar one that's anachronistic in uh, Mummies of Guanajuato uh, where uh, old-time Santo wrestles a wrestler in the 1890s or whatever. Uh, and then when you come to the 1970s, the guy that Santo beat back then is now reincarnated as a zombie. Or whatever. So, um, But, you know, once again, he's a wrestler. So just in case you didn't know that, we want to show you he's a wrestler. Uh, but you know I, I don't know how audiences reacted whether they give us more wrestling and fewer vampires not, not entirely convinced of that so.
0: uh, if it's from Santa if it's from the audience I don't think we'll ever yeah. know now um, I think he's, his son still alive someone yeah his
1: ask. son is alive um, His son actually uh, well, yeah, actually I think he had 10 children but his son Elijo del Santo retired a number of years ago, and then El Hijo del Santo's son now wrestles as Santo Jr. Not not as you would think Santo's grandson, but Santo Jr. So um, the uh, Hijo del Santo is very savvy in terms of marketing and protecting the brand and stuff like that. Uh, But you got to give him credit. I mean, you know, but he was also a uh, legit professional wrestler himself. He wasn't just like, oh, I'm Santo's son and I'm, you know, just a stockbroker or something like that. Uh, he, He has a certain amount of cred, street cred or ring cred.
0: As as funny as that would be, just coming in as a stockbroker or a lawyer, and just getting the absolute piss me out of you every time
1: yeah.
0: in the El Santo mask. It's mean, sacrilegious, almost, but yeah. funny as all hell to watch. Uh, within the film, yeah, uh, we get the, the uh, within that scene where they all run off and they're all screaming. I think they give one cross to the maid, which she. Uh, has her dress or gown that she covers it over during all that and then they give the cross to the daughter they put under the pillow and this is after the blood transfusion um, undergoing and again another mainstay within a lot of santo films where they've been attacked once in this room and for some reason they go yeah the maid that'll, that'll sort it
1: yeah and the maid who always falls asleep or the vampire puts them to sleep and the blood transfusion is interesting because it appears uh, Santo did that himself. There's no doctor around. And when the blood transfusion is over, he's the one who takes the needle out of her arm and puts the band-aid on there. So, you know, in uh, Treasure of Dracula, we see Santo is an inventor who invented a time machine. And this one apparently has uh, pretty good medical skills. Uh, or they just didn't want to hire another actor to play a dra- a doctor i guess. So, I mean you already had the the guy who plays the doctor in the flashback sequence could have brought him back and just you know had him play a similar role and that would be sort of a, a throwback his my father was my great great grandfather was a doctor too or something so
0: it's just this one town where everyone looks the same everyone looks like their yeah. ancestors just copy and paste it I'd have given it anything to see Santo in just that comical like doctor's uh headband where you've got the massive <laughs> silver disc just over his mask. With the inventor as well, he just has a little um I don't know, inventor's hat, the like raincoat hat over everything. Yeah. Just passing over Oh god, I'd pay anything just for a Photoshopper, just all of that in all of his films. <laughs> Beautiful stuff. Uh, yeah uh, with the the maps and everything he goes through all that stuff, finds the maps to uh, uncover the, the hidden lair which slightly cryptic but the right amount I think these obviously these were built in um, 1765 Right, there we go right one on yep. uh, where it's go three miles north you hit I think it's the oak tree I'll just put the tree excellent they hit the tree and then go left and follow along to find the hidden lair uh, which is presumably a giant mausoleum that no one's touched in years yeah. difficult to find
1: tree is, tree is still there after 200 years pretty big tree yeah I mean they're trying to make some logical reason out of it rather than just uh, I'm driving along and oh that must be where it is it would have been you know they previously have already shown that building multiple times uh, so if, if they had their druthers if it had been a more elaborate type of uh, production. You know, they were Old Castle in the Woods. Of course, we saw that in Santo versus the Vampire Women. Old Castle in the Woods means a little model of a castle uh, that we get to see. So, uh, yeah, but the they get you to where you need to go, which is the confrontation with the, uh, the vampire at the end, which is another good fight little bit of missed continuity. If you look at it again, you'll see the beginning of the fight, uh, Baron Bracula and Santo both are wearing capes. Suddenly, uh, at one point, the Baron's cape has gone. It's not ripped off. It just disappears in a cut. Maybe it was magic. Santo keeps his on. And then there's another part where Santo really wax Baron Bracula, and something flies off. And I thought it was Br- uh, Bracula's wig, but it's not. It's his necktie flies off, and you see this big black thing sitting in the middle of the floor, which is kind of distracting. But uh, I-, I never noticed that his cape disappears until, once again, seeing it for the umpteenth time. Uh, I go, wait a minute. Where did his cape go? He had it in the previous shot. He had the cape. And it's not like Santo ripped it off. There are some Santo movies where uh, you he literally takes the cape off in the middle of a fight because it's obstructing him. But in this one, Santo keeps it the whole time. But Bracula, he made his magically disappear. So Oh, and then after Santo stakes him... Uh, while he's laying on the ground, he still has enough strength to get up, stagger over, and climb into his coffin uh, so he can die there. And so they can then run the uh, series of Dissolves from the beginning of the film, where he turns from old man into vampire. and Now they reverse it. This time he goes from vampire and winds up as old man doesn't turn into a skeleton, which I really would have liked, but what are you going
0: to say? That would really fun, yeah. I'd have to rewatch that. Did they just reverse it?
1: You I might, think so. Uh,
0: yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't blame them at all, because that stuff would have cost lots of, lots of time and lots of money.
1: Yeah. I mean, it annoys me in films, and this goes all the way back at least to House of Frankenstein or House of Dracula, whichever one it occurs in, where... You have Dracula's skeleton in a coffin. And now, for some reason, you take out the stake or you spill some blood on it or whatever. He now reconstitutes into Dracula, wearing all of his clothes. The skeleton wasn't wearing the clothes. Really, it should be a naked Dracula. But maybe they're magic clothes. That's, That's my excuse. Okay, you know. Dracula comes back to life. Now it's magic clothes. Uh, that only applies if it's just a bare skeleton. There are films, possibly, um, you know, some of the Hammer films where they have a skeleton wearing a suit, and then this body fills in the suit. But, yeah, it's uh, the John Carradine in House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's House of Frankenstein uh they they're very detailed they for the time they show um blood vessels and stuff start getting getting filled in and then flesh and then boop. now he has his clothes on so track is a
0: prude i suppose
1: yeah i guess but well once again it's magic magic clothes
0: Yeah, circumvented somewhat in modern films where generally they'll be naked and then find some poor homeless guy in a hoodie somewhere. I don't know if they hire these guys, but yeah, they kill them, get the hoodie.
1: That's called the the Terminator Syndrome.
0: (laughs) Old leather jacket. Fitting Arnold Schwarzenegger the massive beefcake perfectly. Somehow. Lucky, lucky. Yeah, uh, the fight at the end... It's a similar stuff wrestling all the way through, but with the addition of the tombstone in the center, which is used to be fair, um, is fun kind of pushing around and seeing the end fight where Santo finally just annihilates the fella and he decays away. And a, a bit of praise I've got to give. This is just for any old film. Uh, the credit sequence is like a minute long. Thank God.
1: That's- it's interesting because. One of the other Vergara films, um, El Acha Diabolica, the Diabolical Axe, made the year before this, but by the same producer, Santo, Same level of production in terms of budget, etc. I'm imagining, uh, actually has an animated credit sequence where you see uh, for example, the title El Acha Diabolica is on the screen against a black background, and it has a, a, a photograph of uh, the arm of the villain uh, holding an axe, and he slices the title in half. So the arm is an actual, you know, photographic image or uh, film strip, but the the uh, graphics of the title are split in half. It's really impressive. For a film of this level, uh, I mean, I somebody said let's spend an extra twenty dollars and you know have animated credits instead of just showing you know the uh, title superimposed. I mean, this doesn't this doesn't actually this is superimposed over like some sort of mummy type of head or something I think over on the left hand side of the screen, but uh, yeah, it was really I'm. I'm in, always impressed when it seems to me that the filmmakers went the extra mile, when they really didn't have to, they didn't do the dumbest, cheapest thing possible. Uh, there's, and I talked before about Jose Diaz Morales, you know, he wasn't a particularly great or stylish well known director, but he did a fairly good job on this film. You look at some other films around this period are made in the very, just they shoot a master shot. They don't have cutaways. It's so boring and cheap. And you can tell that the director just didn't care. But this, it looks like the people did the best they could, um, with the, the resources that they had and it's quite an entertaining film, uh, in my opinion. So
0: no, I mean, I, I love the <laughs> start to finish, um, I, I'll be honest. With this stuff, because of, the, again, the contrast and modern day stuff, I was laughing when you see Santo come out occasionally. There's a giggle that's elicited every time because it's just so different from the older stuff coming in. But it is, it's well constructed. The snap zooms, the the 100 feet, there's effort put into it. Even the credits at the start, I don't know, it isn't animated or anything, but it's put against a fun backdrop with the concrete and it's quick, it's decisive to show you kind of the, the interim, then it immediately just pans over, which is always a fun kind of way of opening as fast as you can, and exits again as fast as you can, kind of with little mummy stuff on the side. Um, I think it's just a really well crafted fun, definitely low budget, but low budget in the sense that the director was given a hundred percent, just do what you want, <laughs> go for it, mate.
1: Yeah, I think Santo uh, had a very definite idea. Uh, that he did not want to be made fun of. He didn't want to be, you know, a buffoon type of character. You know, occasionally he'll, he'll have humorous parts where he, he literally, you know, says things, smiles, jokes around, etc. cetera. But he's treated very respectfully in all of his films. Even the, the one outright comedy that he made, Santo versus Capulina. He plays it entirely straight. He does not do stupid things. Um, he he actually has, you know, literally like one joke that he tells, but, uh, and the film itself is uh, sort of uh, not really in terms of its content, but in terms of the tone, it's sort of like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in that it has comedians in it, but it, plays the film genre very straight and so he doesn't mock the characters. So this is a comedy film with El Santo, but he is not a comedic character and he plays it straight throughout the film. And all the others, yeah, it's, it's, he, I don't think he took himself super seriously, but I think he felt that he had uh, an image that he wanted to protect for, not only for his career, but also because of what it meant to people. And so he would, uh, you know, not do things that he felt were beneath his dignity, which brings into the question about the films with the nude scenes, et cetera. But again, he was a businessman. And so if he said, well, nobody in Mexico will ever see these films, uh, you know, the nude versions. Uh, there's no such thing as uh, home video. Uh, you know These films will be seen and never be seen again. Why not give the people in Italy a thrill to see some nudity in a Santo film? My core constituency in Mexico, my family, my friends, they won't ever see it. So,
0: It's always a That's shame it. with the, the um, stoic straight stuff. In a weird way, I think it'd be really great in a kind of Frank durban role that Leslie Nielsen did in Airplane. I think Santo would have been brilliant in something like that. It, it's a shame he's uh, gone now, passed away, because I did have an yeah. exceptional to see him in that.
1: Yeah, I th- as I said, I think he had a pretty good sense of humor. And in fact, his last job that he had, I guess, if I'm not sure, he really, really needed a job. But after he couldn't uh, wrestle professionally anymore, and he had made a couple of films, but wrestling films were pretty much a dead genre. Uh, he went to work in live performances on the stage, doing like escape acts where he was in a straight jacket and he'd get out. But he would also appear in comic skits with comedians. And but once again, always where he was the straight man, where you know he wasn't made fun of. He was the guy that the comedians would respect while they were doing these comic skits. You know, he was actually doing one of those when he had a fatal heart attack and died. So, but, uh, you know, he, uh, his, and it's, once again, it's it's interesting because before he died, there was a short film, and it's basically a student film, um, called Farewell, My Idol, that, sort of made fun of him that showed santo as like this old out of weight out of uh washed up overweight guy and it was an experimental type of film that really offended a lot of santo fans Um, generally people in mexico were very respectful of him so um, i think that he his films show that yeah they're genre films sometimes they're low budget but um they respect the
0: character. That, that's a wrestler for him through. And not to jump to something else, but uh, the Darren Aronofsky film, my introduction personally into like wrestling WWE culture, the wrestler was released and the Bruce Springsteen song was around that. I almost think Santo encapsulates that, be an entertainer until death, as it turns out, um, with the unfortunate heart attack going in. They wanted to progress his own image, progress his own fandom, his own way of entertaining all the way, even at the uh, even at the expense of his own life, which there's something, I suppose, depending on how you look at it, tragic or very uh, uplifting. I think it's uplifting myself, but...
1: You can see various performers and athletes as well, but maybe to a somewhat lesser extent, because if you're an athlete and you literally cannot do it anymore, then... No one's going to hire you, you know. If I if I'm a baseball player and I am a pitcher and I I can't throw the ball anymore, it doesn't matter where I go in the world. No one's going to hire me to be a baseball pitcher. Whereas if you're an actor, you can, you know, do a summer stock stage. You know, uh, you can go to direct to video. You can do whatever the lowest possible level of entertainment to make some sort of money if you really need it or fame if you really desire the attention. So you never really know whether uh, I know that I shouldn't be doing this anymore, I can't sing anymore, uh, you know, I can't remember my lines, uh, but I want to keep on doing it because I, it's my life. I, I, that's the way I live, is from getting audiences to watch me, or whether I'm starving to death or my, I have 18 children and I need the money. So, Santo, we don't really know. My assumption is that he, he did it because he liked being uh, in the public eye. He liked being a, a performer, um, that he made a bunch of money in his career he probably wasn't starving. and As I said, he had 10 grown children who could probably take care of him. So my imagination, and he would have kept on wrestling. In fact, I believe he had multiple heart attacks in the ring before they finally took away his license. Um, So apparently that was his uh, sort of his identity. That was what he wanted to do was be in the public eye. And you can't really Fault
0: him for that. So. I'd more is the wrestling film than I'd imagine. Actually, then yeah, um, far closer. I, I think it's yeah, it's, it's impressive either way. E- if you're kind of doing it for the sake of the audience, or if you're like, like the late great Cormac McCarthy, who died two months ago, who's writing for his family at the end, um, trying to make them some money. Either way, it's admirable through that. And if Santo did it for the sake of it or for the sake of his family, I appreciate it 100% because I loved I had everything I've seen so far and I, I've got another like 35 films to go through yet to, to push on which I'm going to drag my poor brother into watching most of
1: but you can make them go faster if you fast forward uh, through the wrestling sequences and actually a fair number of them have not a huge number but a fair number of musical sequences and you can <laughs> fast forward through those as well uh so uh, there's a couple that he made before this, this film, Santa versus the Strangler and the Ghost of the Strangler. Uh, those are uh, pretty hard to get through because they have multiple musical sequences. It's like a variety show. That's the plot revolves around a stage show. Um, and so, of course, we have to see 10 different acts do their song in some cases I don't remember which one there's like five songs in a row Jesus Christ so
0: So the the way we tend to finish off change it up a touch Um, first -hmm. things first we go whether we recommend the film we pushed on and I think it's almost superfluous I mean I recommend this wholeheartedly not as a first Santo viewing uh, definitely but I'd watched something else before this, but as a Santo viewing, absolutely. I think these are great, and I don't mean to take the window, but I'm presuming you'd recommend this as well.
1: Yes, and once again, probably not as a first Santo film, but I actually did a thing for the BFI last month where uh, sort of an introduction to Mexican horror movies and which ones that people might want to see to start with. And I did mention Santo in there um, where I said, one of Santo's most famous ones is Santo versus the Vampire Women. But I don't recommend that as a first Santo film because it's misleading, it's not enough Santo. So this one is is plenty of Santo, but once again, it's not a typical Santo film. And so if I had to recommend like as a first Santo, I'd probably say Santo and Blue Demon versus Dracula and the Wolfman, because that's colorful, has a lot of monsters, well-produced, etc. cetera, moves right along. Um, it's, the wrestling scenes are bookended, so the very beginning, the very end, so you can fast forward very easily through them. Um, but this film I would recommend, uh, you know, fairly high on the Santo list. If you see one of the other Santo films, and you like it you say oh let me see some more this would be uh, one of those that I'd say okay take a look at this one
0: and yeah take from a look Brit as well outside of Santo stuff I've not done wrestling but these are great irregardless from a horror standpoint and a western standpoint I mean I can't turn the camera right now and show up I've got a Billy the Kid poster on the side I've got an outlawed Josie Wales poster sitting around I love all that stuff Rise of Terror was my introduction um, so I was looking down and Absolutely incredible, like blown away for this weird world being shoved into that and this bizarre but incredibly, uh, it's difficult to put into words, but incredibly, um, succinct persona that's shoved into these things. And he's, he's so readily throwing in these, uh, morals and his own characterization of himself. It's, yeah, it's a myth, uh, mythology that's built behind.
1: Fascinating. It's it's hard to say. It's difficult for us to know since we're not Mexican. We didn't grow up. But he is certainly uh, instantly recognizable even today. But even when we see these films, we're not seeing his face. We're not hearing his voice that somebody else doing his voice. Um, He does have charisma. He has a screen presence. And some of it's him and some of it is the film that's constructed around him. And uh, I think that comes through even when you're seeing it through the lens of a different culture and a different generation. Uh, he still has the, you know, the heroic persona, the, the mythological uh, greatness of his characters. So.
0: Uh, timeless, a guy okay, so far as to say, I think. Uh, and if anyone wants to find out more stuff from yourself, I don't know if you said Twitter or X or whatever yeah, the hell, Elon Musk exactly. pushes. Yeah. next uh,
1: what I would say, where I would direct people, um, I recent, well, recently six months ago, I changed my web platform. Um, so now uh, most of my uh, not the daily tweets and stuff like that, which you can find by just looking my name up or whatever, but um, most of my, all the Santo film stuff, all my Mexican film bulletin, various other stuff, is at davewiltfilms.net. Very easy to remember, davewiltfilms.net. There's the Santo Films pages linked from there. I'm actually gonna go in probably today or tomorrow and update the Baron Bracola page because I found a bunch of new stuff to put on there. Um, and various other things. So, um, and like I said, yeah, if you, if you go to Instagram or, or Twitter, whatever it's called now, um, usually it's under Wilt 55 um, And I do a Santo tweet every Saturday, Santo Saturday. Um, and I do various other film and pop culture related tweets and Instagram things, whatever they're called, uh, the rest of the week as well.
0: So I'll make sure that's all linked in the description wherever you find it, Spotify, Google, all that fun stuff. Uh, and no pressure, you're going to be like the introduction to a lot of Brits wrestling side. So enjoy that one. I <laughs> uh, will see how they, they take to it. it it's been a yeah, real different rabbit hole. Um, thanks everyone for listening. I, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. It's uh, fascinating. I,
1: world. I, always, I always enjoy talking and I you know, I enjoy listening as well. I mean, I, I've also said everybody. There's millions of silos around, and, and everybody has something that they know a lot about that, that they're interested in. Whenever somebody knocks on the door of my silo and says, "Talk about Mexican movies," I'm ready to go. So.
0: Spoken like a true professor. And
1: huh?
0: uh, no, I, uh, yeah, uh, appreciate your listening. We'll be back at some point within the next few weeks. Pushing on on probably, what was it now? I have wrote down bloody vampire, an invasion of the vampires. Uh-huh. <laughs> that a hundred percent. That's what they're going to be demanding. Uh-huh. Through I've been pushed on a rabbit hole through Mexican filmography, and I'm going to get more after that. It's uh-huh. going to be week after week. Have a good one, guys.
1: Great, that's thank you.